When we were last together, we were in chapter 5 of Daniel. And uh, the, the prophet Daniel is, is more and more evident in the text, if you will. Uh, now, here we had the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who was co-regent of Babylon. His name was Belshazzar. And uh, he was on sort of lockdown in the city. The city was surrounded by the, the uh, Medo-Persian army. Uh, his father, Nabonidus, had gone out to battle with the Babylonian armies and had suffered a vast loss. And Nabonidus, who was the other co-regent, fled. Um, and uh, since Babylon was on lockdown, um, they were pretty sure that that was going to be a fortress that would stand against any army of the day. Uh, but Belshazzar threw a feast for a thousand nobles to sort of buck up their courage. And in the middle of this feast... After dinner, they went to the. They served the wine, and the orgy started, and um, and then uh, Belshazzar, King Belshazzar, sent for the silver goblets and the silver and the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple in Jerusalem by his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar. That's also possible as the ten golden lampstands, the menorah that lit the holy place. They were also on display to light this feast thingy. So toast after toast were raised to, to honor the gods of Babylon. And, and suddenly on the wall, on the whitewashed gypsum wall of this throne room, banquet hall, whatever it was, there's a huge human hand that appears and it writes on the wall. Now there's 17 letters that ultimately will break down to four Aramaic words uh, that are read from right to left. And uh, it terrifies the king. It just, he, it, literally the text says, he screamed. Uh, Belshazzar called for his mag- magicians and Chaldeans and the conjurers to come and, and, and read and interpret this. And so he, he holds out a carrot. He says, okay, you're going to get, whoever can do this gets the purple robes that are worn only by royalty. You're going to get the roped, heavy gold chain, you know, that speaks of your authority. And you're going to be the number three ruler in all of Babylon in the, in the empire. So in come all the conjuring crowd, and they look at those, and they rearrange those, and they go, no, don't get it. They had nothing to offer the king, and so now the king is really terrified. Okay, and at that point, the queen mother rushes in. She wasn't part of this banquet thing, but she's, she comes from the outside in, and she reminds, uh, it would be her grandson too, um, that... There was a counselor named Daniel who had never failed in the interpretation of dreams or solving of crazy riddles and, and other naughty problems. And so Daniel was sent for. And on arrival, the king makes the same offer. You know, the purple robe, the golden chain, the third place in rulership. And, and Daniel turns it down, says, you keep it. I'm not going to take that. Not interested. That's not why I'm here. But he said I, that he would read and, and, and interpret the writing on the wall. Mene, mene, tekel, upharsin. He reminded Belshazzar of the humbling of his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, who had been driven into the field as if he was a, an ox for seven years. <clears throat> and, and then um, he, he turns to the ruler of the, of the Babylonian Empire, and he rebukes Belshazzar because he, had, he himself had not humbled himself before the God of heaven. And then he says, okay, this is what the writing says. You have been numbered 
and numbered again. And now God is going to put an end to your kingdom. You have been weighed in the scales and found deficient. Your kingdom is going to be torn from you and divided between the Medes and Persians camped out around the city. Well, Belshazzar kept his promise. He quickly robed Daniel in purple and gave him the golden chain and proclaimed him the third ruler in the, in the, uh, in the entire empire. But Belshazzar himself clung to his own pride and the gods of Babylon. Daniel got to, to be that ruler, that third-level ruler for mere minutes because while all this was going on, Medo-Persian warriors were creeping under the walls of the, of the fortress Babylon in the, in the watercourse. The river had been, dis, had been routed out into the marshes. The river level, river level dropped, and in come the warriors, and they went right to the palace, and Belshazzar is killed on sight. That wicked king got his just rewards. The Babylonian Empire was snatched away and put into the hands of the Persians, fulfilling that second part of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. If you recall, there was chest and shoulders and arms, excuse me, chest, shoulders, arms, that were silver. And this is the second level of that, that dream that came to Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel had, had interpreted. Let's pray. Lord God of heaven, we bow before you. We humble ourselves before you. Lord, we want to lift up our praise to you and you alone. We too are vulnerable to pride. To thinking that we can act and no one will know. It will be invisible somehow. Lord God, thank you that you're sending for sending Holy Spirit alongside of us to remind us that you alone are God and we are not. You sent the dream to Nebuchadnezzar and here we see the record of partial fulfillment. There it is, that's, that, just as you promised. We look with expectancy to the fulfillment of the promises that you have made to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'll turn with you to chapter 6. In the, in the book of the prophet Daniel. Now, this is the best known Bible story of them all. Okay, this is Daniel in the lion's den. Woo. Okay, but just as familiarity can breed contempt and reading in a, with a ho-hem attitude or try to read for entertainment, um, that'll cause you to miss some of the hidden things. We were introduced to uh, Darius the Mede in the previous verse, just at the end of chapter 5, the last verse in chapter 5. <clears throat> and scholars uh, wrangle about who he was because the term Darius was an honorific term. It was, it was a title, as was the title of Cyrus. It wasn't his name. It was a title. So it may have been that this Darius you know, was actually General Gobrius, that he was the commander whose troops swept under the wall and into Babylon and snatched away the empire. His age and his battle command probably qualified him to be the king, if you will. Or this king Darius might have been Cyrus himself because it is known in the ancient world that kings had multiple titles and, and different names that they were known by in history. 
Greek historians that wrote about this transition of the Babylonian Empire all the way over to the Persian Empire, um, they note that Gobrius only lived a couple of years after the fall of Babylon. And that would coincide with Cyrus, if you will, ascending to the throne after two years of crushing down the last little spots of rebellion by the remaining Babylonian troops. Some of the exiled people of Judah had already left under Zerubbabel and they had gone back to Jerusalem. Cyrus may indeed be in heaven because he had an encounter with Yahweh. Uh, We don't know if it was face-to-face, but it was an encounter. And it rocked his world. And from that point forward, he never again worshipped idols. So we may find Cyrus in the mix in heaven. And so you feel free to ask him to sort out the dates and who, you know. Okay, that's right. Okay, verses 1 to 3 set the stage here. It says, It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they should be in charge of the whole kingdom and over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. So this is the second empire that Daniel has served and the fifth king in his career. His extraordinary spirit was wrapped about by, we would identify it as Holy Spirit. You know, they described it as the spirit of the gods. Well, El Elyon was the term that rightly described the, 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 the Trinity, if you will. <clears throat> and, and that same Holy Spirit endowed Daniel, with great abilities to lead and discern. Now, as mentioned previously, the Persian Empire was inferior to the Babylonian Empire. Remember in the picture of the, the dream, the Babylonian Empire was, had a gold head, and then we went to silver. It was an inferior system. And, and that had to do with um, the fact that greed, corruption, and graft was absolutely rampant in the Persian world. Darius, knowing who he was reigning over, named individuals to try and curb that corruption from running wild. Daniel was so on point in his governance and uh, his oversight that Darius had set out to appoint him to the level of prime minister over the whole empire. Now, being a satrap, or a commissioner or a governor in that setting was a position into which a man could become incredibly wealthy and powerful depending on how he played his cards. Okay? And those, those uh, Persians, if you will, played their cards tight. They held it to their chest and they, they always had side deals going. Daniel, on the other hand, had all his cards spread out in front of him. Everybody knew what he was doing. Everybody could see what he had done. Totally different thing. And essentially, he was, he was operating at the highest level of integrity, doing the right thing even when no one was watching. That lifestyle of faultless leadership grated deeply across the Persian governing system. Now, verses 4 to 5 lays out the plot 
to unhorse Daniel from leadership. Then the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground for, of accusation or negligence or corruption. Um, they couldn't bring, there was nothing to be brought against him, found, you know, that wasn't found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Now this band of other, the other two commissioners, uh, uh, you know, they, there were three of them, Daniel's one. So the other two have banded together. It was a bunch of local, local satraps. This did, you know, this is such a vast empire. This did not include everybody. It was just sort of a local deal around the city of Babylon. But enough so that these uh, satraps joined into this conspiracy. <clears throat> um, and they finally recognized the only way to get at Daniel is to kind of, through his, his worship of, of God. Verses 6 to 9, lay out the traps set for Daniel. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All, get that word, all the commissioners of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps and the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or any man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's pit. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, and that is the injunction. So this band of conspirators literally thronged the king. The text says, well, they agreed, you know, and they came into agreement and they came to the king. But that literally, they sort of, you know, uh, rushed into the... The, the throne room and filled it up. There's a whole bunch of them and they all came at once. It's like this impressive crowd that's just kind of, whoa, where did you all come from? Okay? And uh, they claiming that all commissioners and satraps were in favor of this, they pushed their way into his presence, proposed that all prayer, all supplication across the empire for the next 30 days be addressed to this king. Now, there's no evidence that any Babylonian king or any Persian king ever ascended to deity. They never saw themselves as gods. They worshipped a ton of idols and other gods, but they, didn't, they themselves, unlike Caesar or <laughs> others, that took on a deity function. Okay? So these prayers were designed to be mediated through, to be filtered through. So you sort of pray in the name of the king, so that your petition would be heard by such and such a god. All right, for 30 days. This request, excuse me, this request then by the conspirators was to urge prayer and supplication across the entire empire. And the king, you know, he, he had the sense that this was a way of unifying the disparate groups spread wide across the empire. So he signed it. It is evident from the text that the conspirators brought with them a copy of it. They had it ready for his signature. Sort of slide it in and get him to stamp it, and it's done. Now, note the little bit there about not able to change reference about the law of <clears throat> Medes and Persians. 
1,200 years previous, the king of Babylon was named Hammurabi. And he is known in the ancient world as having crafted 282 laws. or, or It's part of a code. It's called the Code of Hammurabi. <clears throat> and it covered everything from commerce to trade to marriages to childbirth to you, every, the whole spectrum of life. It was wrapped up in the code of Hammurabi. And it became a bit of a template, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> a bit of a template or an outline for other forms of governance all over the ancient East. Specific to that code was a law that said uh, if a judge ruled and then changed his mind and reversed his ruling, he would be disqualified for life as a judge, and the, per, the first ruling that he made would be put in place forever. And so that business of the referred to law of the Medes and Persians, so if the king signed a law into edict, it would stand forever. Now you remember the wicked Haman of the book of Esther? Okay, Haman persuades Ahasuerus, King Ahasuerus, that the Jews are vile, wicked, they're anti-king, etc. And so he got Ahasuerus to write an edict that all Jews would be killed on such and such a day. And it was Queen Esther who went to the king and pled with him to write another edict that said, and... The Jews have a right to defend themselves against this slaughter. But it didn't take away the effect of the first edict. So Ahasuerus' first edict that there was going to be a day when all the Jews were slaughtered, etc. Well, it, it blew up in their faces and the Jews survived, etc. Okay. But that business of having made a command written into the law of the Medes and Persians can't, can't change it once it's in, in set. So here... Darius had signed an injunction that could not be rescinded. Any found guilty would be cast that day into a pit filled with lions. Now, Persians did capture lions, and they caged them in city squares. The Assyrians did it, the, per the Persians did it, and it was, they were used for execution. So if you were a traitor, if you were a criminal, if you were an oath-breaker, they just simply would pick you up, you know, you'd get summary judgment, and they would toss you in with the lions and gone. <clears throat> uh, probably, uh, Darius was living in one of the palaces in Babylon that the previous emperors had built. We did, and we described some of that vast palace stuff. But apparently there was a pit into which Lions had been placed, and they were there for the purpose of execution. <clears throat> so the deal was, if anyone in the empire were to pray or make supplication to a man in power, other than the king, for the next 30 days, they would be cast into the pit of lions that very day. So Daniel hears. Daniel wasn't present. Daniel wasn't part of this crowd that rushed, bummed, you know, you know, rushed into the... And got this edict signed. And uh, he hears that the injunction has been signed by the king. He knows. He's served under the law, if you will, in Babylon and under the law of Medes and Persians. And he knows there's no point in going to the king to argue his case. It's done. It's a done deal. So he goes to pray. 
Now, he had, he had a dwelling that had a second floor, and that could have been an amazing thing. You know, two floors high, that, that's unusual, uh, special. Or it could have been a one-story dwelling that had a, uh, uh, some kind of uh, shelter built on the roof. That, that was much more common um, because it was cooler in the evenings, etc. So Daniel went to that second floor, threw open the windows, got on his knees, and began to pray, as he had done for 70 years in exile, three times a day, morning, noon, and night. And he, and he was on his knees facing Jerusalem because, to him, that's where God, Yahweh, had promised that his name would dwell forever. Temple was burned. Jerusalem was smashed. Didn't matter. God promised my name is going to dwell here forever. And it was into that temple that was burned and smashed. It was into that temple that God had come. His presence had come and filled up the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple. And so he's on his knees. He's praying toward Jerusalem to God Most High. And it's obvious that he's concerned more about his faithfulness to God than he is about his own life. Verses 11 to 14 tell the account of Daniel being thronged, if you will, just like the king. You know, this crowd of, of commissioners and satraps, they rush into Daniel's house and they catch him at prayer. Aha, we've got you. Immediately, that bunch of conspirators went to the king, asking the king, had he not just signed the injunction that no man in the empire could pray to make supplication except through Darius, the king, for the next 30 days? And did not the king agree to throw any such man who violated that injunction into the pit of lions? The king said, that statement's true. According to the law of Medes and Persians, which may not, it may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king. Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, ugh, pay no attention to, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction that you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. So Daniel is described as a Jewish exile from Judah. And you want to read that as a put down. Okay, that's a... It was inconceivable to the Persians that they would be ruled by a Jew. And they were, they were doing everything they could to make that not happen. But the wording here, okay, the charge against Daniel, it's almost word for word, the charge that was made against um, Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah. Remember before Nebuchadnezzar? These three men don't listen to you. They don't pay any attention to you. Okay, and they worship their own God, etc. Same charge, slightly different wording, same reality. It's likely that the king signed the injunction thinking that it was good to start unifying the empire. But now he suddenly realizes he has been used. He's been trapped by these sub-governors into doing away with Daniel, whom he respects and trusts. The king then spends the rest of that day searching the law of, Med, of the Medes and the Persians for a loophole. Is there any way he could rescue, any way he could intervene? And nothing was found, 
and he arrives at sunset. And at the end of the day, it says the conspirators again thronged on into thronged into the, the throne room. And they, they actually lecture the king, which is fascinating. Okay? Recognize, O king, that it is now, <clears throat> there's a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Say it to him again. With the law the king had signed, they sort of push him up against the legal reality that, that Daniel was doomed. With no options left, he, he uh, calls for Daniel to come. And, uh, and they and walks him to the, to the, if you will, pit head or the mouth of this, of this uh, underground den. And at the last thing he says is, Daniel, your God, who you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. And then Daniel is, it says, cast <coughs> into, you know, whether he was lowered or whether he was tossed, we don't know exactly. Okay? They brought a stone, they set it over the mouth of this pit, and then they wiped wet clay all the way around the stone and pressed stone. The, the king's signet ring and the noble's signet rings into it to create a seal to say we're not nobody's going to mess with this because to break the seal means you have to you've messed with the king okay now 400 years before this king david of israel knew well the pressures put on him by those that wanted to betray him ambush him kill him and strip away from him the throne Psalm 59, verse 3 says, For behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me. Not for my transgressions, not for my sin, O Lord. For no guilt of mine, they run and set themselves against me. Psalm 62, 4 says, They have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. This is messianic as well. Okay, Counseled against him to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. Daniel finally arrives at the conclusion of Psalm 37, 39, and 40, which says, But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. And the Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Such was the heartscape of Daniel as he descended into that pit. And the text says the king went off to the palace. But he refused food. He didn't eat. And then it says he refused all forms of entertainment. All the harem, all the concubines, all the dancers, all the musicians... None of it. I was having none of it. He had a tough night. It was a hard night for the king. And at dawn, pre-dawn, at dawn, he rushes to the pit head. But when he gets there, the rock has been moved. The seal has been broken. And with a, a tremulous, weak voice is how it's actually translated, he cries out, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king. O God, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. They have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him 
And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. Okay, Forge family. There are two things here. There's one in the natural. There's one in the spiritual. In the natural, trial by ordeal was really common. In other words, you could prove yourself innocent if you could survive the ordeal. And usually those ordeals were water, fire, or poison. Okay? But in the case here, you have someone who is charged and thrown into the pit of lions. And if, you know, if they were to survive, being in the cage of the lions and come out, survive, they would be, they would be innocent. That trial by ordeals was known all over Northern Europe. It's, it's super common, you know, amongst a certain age, okay? And Daniel makes a direct comment to that effect, okay? I was found innocent before him, before God. Okay? So the spiritual side of this, Who else in scripture, do you remember, was put into a place of death, covered with a stone, sealed, marked with a signet, so there could be no mischief? Who was innocent of all charges? Who else had angels present when the rock was moved away, the place of death was found open, and the seal was broken? His name is Jesus. What an amazing thing for the Lord of Heaven to stage a dress rehearsal. Daniel was lifted out of the pit, and on examination, there's no injuries to be found. <clears throat> for which God is given the credit. The king immediately sent orders to bring the men who had maliciously accused Daniel, they were subject to summary judgment. They, their wives, and their children were tossed into the pit. And it is said that their bodies never reached the floor because the lions would leap and smash the life out of them in midair. Now, that proves that Darius didn't overfeed his lions to be disinterested in Daniel. <laughs> okay, the, the, the Persians... Babylonians and Persians had exquisite, horrible forms of execution. So it, it was just a, a very typical thing that if you were caught as a traitor, if you were caught as someone who had lied, you know, you and your family were paid the ultimate price in, in horrible ways. Darius, like Nebuchadnezzar before him, sent a decree to the empire that, quote, men are to hear and tremble, fear and tremble, before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. All right, Forge family, what a delightful tidbit of truth, if you will, set in the midst of the oft-told story of Daniel and the lion's den. So, not if, 
not if, but when. You are accused and you are innocent. Not if, but when you are conspired against. Flee into the cleft of the rock. Into the words of the scripture written out by men and women under the inspiration of Holy Spirit in their moments of threat. In their moments of betrayal. In their moments where they ought to be terrified, but they're, they're trusting in God. So set a place in your heart. Maybe put it on a calendar to rehearse those truths. Know that if David and Daniel and Jesus were set up and betrayed, pursued unto death as it were, you will need the resources of the supernatural, of the God who rescues and saves. Let's pray. Lord God, Grant us eyes to see when we read the word of God so that we can share blessed truth with others even as we rejoice. You, O Lord, are our rescuer. You, O Lord, lift us up and seat us with you in the heavenlies. This day, we would be those who cling to you rather than cling to our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen.